Ladies, should you wear a veil at Mass? This is a question that I get all the time. I've gotten this question for over 10 years. And I've always paused before doing a video on it because I'm thinking, I should probably have my wife, Joy, do this video. And so I've sort of procrastinated and put it off. But today's the day. Today we're going to ta uh, tackle a number of things. We're going to look at the Bible, the New Testament. There's about 10 verses in 1 Corinthians talking about women, headship, and covering your head with a veil for prayer in liturgy. Also, the second pope, Pope St. Linus, also mentions the importance of a veil. And then also, the canon law of the Catholic Church in 1917, all the way up until 1983, had a very specific canon for women covering their heads in church. So we're going to look at all that today, and then I'm just going to present the info to you. And I'm just a dad on a webcam on YouTube. I have no authority. I'm not a pope. I'm not a cardinal. I'm not a bishop. I'm not a priest. I'm not a saint. I'm just a guy bringing some info together, presenting it to you, and then you make the call. You make the decision. So before we do all that, we will begin with a prayer, and then we'll look at all of this info. We'll begin with the Bible. We'll begin with 1 Corinthians. So we'll begin with the prayer of the Our Father in Latin. Oremos in nomine Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Pater noster, qui es in celi, sanctificetur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum, fiat voluntas tua, sicut in cello et in terra. Panem nostrum quotidianum da nobis odie, et emite nobis debita nostra, sicut et nos dimitimus debitoribus nostris, et ne nos inducas in tentationem, se libera nos amalo. Amen. Nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right, so should you wear a veil? Now, it's interesting. The Bible directly addresses this issue. There are a little over 10 verses talking about this. It comes from St. Paul, and it comes from 1 Corinthians. Now, before I go into this, I'm just going to say that there's a lot of people who dismiss the Bible in a number of ways. Here are some common ways people dismiss Bible passages. First off, they say, well, that was in the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. All right. As Catholics, we actually believe in a continuity based on typology, of the New Testament fulfilling the Old Testament. Other people will say, well, that was a long time ago and part of a certain culture, and we now have a different culture. And the presumption here is our culture is better than their culture. Otherwise, if their culture was better than ours, we'd be following their cultural norms. So it's the idea that there are different cultures and there are certain things in the scriptures that we can maybe slice and dice and take out and they don't apply to us. And there may actually be some of those things. But in this case, um, in 1 Corinthians 11, when we talk about should women wear a veil in church, um, he's actually making theological arguments and not cultural arguments. So... Um, there's that one. And then another one would be, well, 1 Corinthians was written by St. Paul, and St. Paul was a XYZ. He was a misogynist. He was a jerk. He wasn't really a Christian. He wasn't really apostle. All kinds of arguments that liberals and people in other religions make. I think if you're a Catholic, though, you believe that Paul was St. Paul, and he was Apostle Paul. And he taught with authority, and he had that authority directly from Jesus Christ. And he wrote not most of the New Testament, but, you know, a goodly bit coming up on maybe 
of the New Testament through all the epistles, the 14 epistles that he penned. So this is from Paul. And I think as a Christian, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I need to take everything Paul says seriously. So we're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to read these verses, and then we'll, we'll talk about what they could mean and look at some of the Greek and the Latin to clarify some things. So 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, Be followers of me, as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you, brethren, that in all things you are mindful of me and keep my ordinances as I have delivered them to you. I'm going to pause here. So he's saying, look, um, be followers of Christ, but he says, be followers of me too. He says, be followers of me as I also am in Christ. It's an interesting thing, right? And he says, he's praising them because they're following the ordinances that he's delivered to them. So he's set down rules, canons for these Christians in Corinth to follow. And he's praising them saying, you're following the ordinances that I set down. What is he talking about? Well, now he begins to explain in verse 3. He says, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man praying or prophesying with his head covered disgraceth his head, but every woman praying or prophesying with her head not covered disgraceth her head, for it is all one as she were shaven. For if a woman be not covered, let her be shorn. But if it be a shame to a woman to be shorn or made bald, let her cover her head. The man indeed ought not to cover his head, because he is in the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Think about that. Verse 8. For the man is not of woman, but the woman of man. For the man was not created for the woman, but the woman for the man. Therefore ought the woman to have a power over her head because of the angels. But yet neither is the man without the woman, nor the woman without the man in the Lord. For as the woman is of the man, so also is the man by the woman, but all things of God. You yourselves judge, doth it become a woman to pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that a man indeed, if he nourishes hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman nourish her hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor the church of God. Now this I ordain, not praising you, but that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. And then he starts talking about the Eucharist and the coming together for Mass. So what's interesting is chapter 11 in 1 Corinthians, the first half is on women and men and head coverings. And then the second half of chapter 11 is about how to come together and have the Eucharist, what he calls the Supper of the Lord with the changing of the bread into the body of Christ and the wine into the blood of Christ. Now, let's look at this. You know, he says, and this might be controversial to some, and let me just, speaking to the ladies out there, many women have had horrible experiences with men. These could be father figures, these could be husbands or others, right? Some of these could be violent, abusive, horrific I am not, please do not hear me say that I'm telling you to submit or lay down or be a doormat to these awful men who are abusive and horrific, bad men. That's not what's being said here. That's not the context. We are examining here, from St. Paul's perspective, the relationship of husbands and wives who are both 
seeking the will of God in their lives. And in that context, there's a certain hierarchy. For example, a different relationship would be the relationship between a layman and a priest and a bishop, or a layman and a bishop. In a perfectly ordered situation where the bishop was seeking the will of God and the layman was seeking the will of God, the layman actually is beneath the bishop. That's Catholic teaching, right? There's a hierarchy in the church. But if the bishop is being abusive, bad, he's a heretic, he's teaching immorality, he's performing immorality and all that, then that means that the lay person doesn't have to follow that bishop and all the nonsense and garbage and rubbish that that bishop is doing or promoting. All right, so that's kind of the analogy here. So we are assuming here in 1 Corinthians 11 a properly oriented marriage and a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now he says that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God. So this does not mean that men and women have that men have more uh, intrinsic value or more dignity than a woman. We all have equal dignity before God, but when it comes to the hierarchy in the world and in the church, the husband is the head of the woman. Now, elsewhere, St. Paul says that the husband is supposed to serve the wife as Christ served the church, even laying down his life for his wife, just as Christ laid down his life for the church. And so when you talk about the wife submitting or submission to the husband, what does the Latin word submission mean? Submission. Sub is Latin for under. Mission means what? A mission. Ideally, in a properly oriented marriage, the mission of the husband is to get to heaven and get his wife to heaven and his kids to heaven. That is his mission. So I would say to holy wives, why would you not want to be part of that mission? That's the ideal mission, submission, under that mission, right? Now, there might be certain things that have to do with budget or vacation or living that you may not always agree with your husband, but according to Paul, you're going to go ahead and submit on these details as well because there is a certain hierarchy. Just like if the bishop makes a certain thing in the diocese that's not against faith or morals, the lay people, as long as it's not bad, or a compromise, they should say, well, I don't fully agree with the bishop, but he is the bishop, and we are going to continue to support him. And maybe he has a gift, he has a charism, he has something from the Lord. Uh, it's going to help us all. All right. So the idea here is we have the man as the head of the woman, and this leads into the idea that she needs to have something on her head when she's praying, verse 6, but every woman praying or prophesying with her head not covered disgraceth her head. For it is all one as if she were shaven, as if someone shaved her head. For if a woman be not covered, let her be shorn. But if, she be, but if it be a shame to a woman to be shorn or made bald, let her cover her head. Now, one of the things in antiquity, I'm not saying that Paul's referring this to here, but I think certain church fathers have, is that in antiquity, the prostitutes were shorn, they were bald, and they wore wigs and headdresses to make themselves more attractive in the public. In order to facilitate this, they were shorn. I'm not saying that's the case here, but in antiquity, the idea of a woman with a shorn head, there was, a, as he says, a certain shame attack, attached to that. Why? Because the glory of a woman, as he says in a few verses below, is her hair. And that's the truth. Let me tell you, I have a wife, I have four daughters and on before school and before church on Sunday, 
the amount of attention and conversation and activity that goes on in our home for these five women relating to hair is immense. There is washing, uh, there's shampooing, there's conditioning, there's uh, after you get out of the shower conditioner, there are blow dryers, there are there's curlers, there's all kinds of the, uh, detanglers. All this stuff is going on. Now, the boys in our house, hopefully they comb their hair. Um, but, but for the women, built into this, built into, I think, human nature is the glory of the woman is her hair, as St. Paul says. That it's part of, it's a sign of her vitality, vitality her, her youth, um, and it is beautiful when you see beautiful, healthy hair. I mean, just from like a scientific point of view, healthy hair is a signal of a healthy person. And I think we all kind of intuitively see that, right? And so he even says towards the end, he goes, isn't it kind of shameful for a man to nourish his hair? He says in verse 14, doesn't nature teach you that a man indeed, if he nourishes hair, it is a shame to him? Like if you're obsessed with your hair and doing that much work with your hair as a man, people are like, eh, that's kind of weird, man. But for women, it's natural, according to St. Paul. If a woman nourish her hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. So this is the whole idea, right? And this is why in most cultures and in most time, women have longer hair that they care more for, and men don't. Now this relates and goes back to her wearing a veil. And the interesting section here is actually the verse here is verse 10. This is perhaps the most theological part of the verse and I've put it up here on the screen. It's on the upper right side. Paul says, therefore ought the woman to have power over her head because of the angels. Power. So this whole idea is that the woman in particular in this context, I believe we're talking about husbands and wives, but the wife her, hus her head is the husband, and then she has power on her head. Now, what's the word power here? Well, in the Greek, the original Greek that St. Paul wrote, it's exousion. Exousion. That means like, ousias um, is essence, substance, and ex means out. So it's like uh, power coming out of substance, right? Kind of coming out of nature. And then in Latin, it's potestatum like kind of related to, I mean, potency is a different word, but it's the same idea. It's power. But why? Because of the angels, Paul says. And he doesn't explain it. So I've read the church fathers on this, and I don't want to go through them because it would take a while. But there's basically two theories on what he means by because of the angels. The most common is that when you're at church and when you're at the liturgy, the Eucharist, the Mass, angels are present big time there. And in order to designate the proper place of a woman in the liturgical assembly, which is under her husband, her husband being the said, submitted to her husband, she is wearing this veil as power upon her head. So it's a witness to the invisible realm at Mass. Another interpretation that you see in the church fathers, and you see over time too, over 2,000 years, is often the clergy, the priests and the bishops, are called angels. You see this in the Eastern liturgy. You also see it in the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation. Christ 
sends a message to the seven angels of seven different churches, seven different dioceses, and almost everyone agrees, church fathers and interpreters, doctors of the church, that when he's addressing each of the angels of each of these churches, he's talking about the bishop, the head cleric, the head priest of each region. So it could be that the woman is to dress modestly and to cover her head to, in a way, preserve her beauty for her husband, who is her head, and then in a way to cover it as a power over her so that she is not a distraction to the clergy who are there, celibate, operating in the liturgy, administering in the holy things, handling holy things, and doing all the functions around the altar all committed 100% to the Lord. That's another interpretation, right? Because remember, when you go to Mass, uh, the priest is the father of the family. You're reassembled here. That's why we call him father, pater. So in order to sort of keep this um, distinction in this hierarchy, right, even within the family of the father and the wife and all that, there's this veil, right, this power, that sort of denotes that she is, in fact, submitted and belonging to her husband. All right, so that's 1 Corinthians. Now, another thing that's kind of interesting about this is Pope Linus. So when Peter died, there was another pope after Peter. Peter was the first pope, as you know. When he died, the next pope was named Linus, L-I-N-U-S. And Linus, in the Libra Pontificalis, wrote a decree, and he said, this is in the 60s, A.D. 60s. So we're talking like 35-ish years after Christ rose from the dead, within a generation, within one generation. Linus says that women, Pope Linus, should cover their heads with a veil whenever they enter the churches of God. So whenever you go into a church, a veil goes on. And that's the custom in traditional churches right now. If you go to a, and before the 1960s, anytime a woman went into a church, even if she was just going to go in and, and pray a novena or pray a rosary, uh, even if there wasn't a mass, she would have a, a veil or a hat or something like that, and she would veil and she would go into the church. Complete custom. This was also in canon law. So in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, it's not that long ago. It was required for women to cover their heads inside of a church. It said, quote, Women, however, shall have a covered head and be modestly dressed, especially when they approach the table of the Lord, end quote. So when women go in the church, they're supposed to be modestly dressed and have a veil on their head, especially when they come up forward to the altar rail to receive the Most Holy Eucharist. Now, in 1983, the Code of Canon Law was redone. It was revised under John Paul II. And in the 1983 Code of Canon Law, there was no mention of women wearing veils. And this is why since 1983, if you go to a non-traditional Catholic church, Nova Sordo church, you're barely going to see any women wearing any head covering or veil whatsoever. And commentators said, well, it seems that since it's true that from up until 1982, the canon law said a woman had to wear a veil in church. And by the way, in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox, Eastern Catholics, they wore the veils. But in 1983, it's no longer mentioned, so it must not apply anymore. And my question is, again, I'm not a woman, but it's like, if it's in the New Testament, 
And the second pope directly addressed it. And it was the unbroken tradition up until 1982. What, what so special happened in 1983 where we don't do it anymore? And that's the question I think that we all have to ask ourselves. Again, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just raising a rhetorical question. I can remember once upon a time reading this and thinking, man, it'd be great if Joy, my wife, wore a veil. But instead of like telling her, I, hey, I want you to wear a veil. Here's a veil. Wear it. I made a deal with our Lord Jesus Christ. I said, hey, I think it'd be great if my wife would wear a veil. But I'm going to ask you to bring it about in her mind and make it her idea. And I think it was like within a month, maybe less than a month, she said, hey, I'm going to start wearing a veil. And this shows us that our Lord Jesus Christ, he cares about everything. You ask him about uh, your son's uh, baseball team or your, your dental appointment or the repair on your car or something in your house. People think God doesn't care about everything. Like, oh, he's too busy for that. God has so much power and knowledge. It's infinite, right? So... People say, oh, he doesn't care about some football game. Yeah, he cares about a football game. He cares about everything. He cares about algae that he made, and he cares about all kinds of insects that are in the, the forests, and he cares about stars that are way out that we can't even see. He cares about all this stuff because we are not deists. We don't believe God's out there and doesn't really care about us. We believe God intimately cares about every single detail in creation. Every single hair on your head, every single cell in your body, God cares about it. Every single decision. Everything. So we should pray, you know, on these things. I'd really like my wife to wear a veil. But I'm not going to just make it a weird, awkward thing. I'll just ask our Lord Jesus to make it happen. And then in 30 days, wow, it happened. Now, if you attend the traditional Latin Mass, you probably see lots and lots of women wearing veils. And I'm just going to answer a couple of questions. People say, well, what color veil? Well, first of all, where do I get a veil or a covering? You can always just have a scarf or a silk scarf or whatever. You see that? Um, you can order them online. There's all kinds of websites. You want to search the word chapel veil or mantilla. Mantilla looks like this. Mantilla. All right. I wish I had one to recommend. Maybe there's someone. Is there a is there a Chapelville company that wants to sponsor the Dr. Taylor Marshall show? I could maybe draw people to get some good high quality. My wife, I've gotten her some really high quality Chapelvilles, like really nice, really nice. So, A, I think it's easier just to get them online. If you go to a traditional church, most churches have fresh, clean chapel veils in a basket by the door. They're for you to use. A lot of women go, ooh, that's gross. Someone's been wearing that before me? No. Every time I've seen it, they are clean. And when there's an exit, so when you come out, now I don't recommend everyone using these. I think you should get your own. But there's another basket where you put it when you're done, and then somebody cleans them, and they put them in the fresh basket, and they rotate, right? Those are for people who forget. And honestly... I got five women. Sometimes I'm going to mass and I'm with my teenage daughter and she's like, oh, my chapel veil's in mom's car. Oh, you know, and what happens? She comes to mass. She doesn't have a chapel veil on. No one judges her. No one crucifies her. If there's some extra spare clean ones, she can wear one of those. If there's not, it's no big deal. So that's kind of a next question. Are you going to be judged? Is this like 
I'm better than you. I'm holier than thou. No, not at all. No, not at all. It's a devotion. It's a devotion that you do in honor of the Lord. And that's it. And it's between you and God and not other people. What are some other questions? Oh, yeah. What color should you wear? A lot of people say unmarried women wear white veils. Married women wear black veils or widows must wear black veils. There's really not... Other than, I think, for being the churching of the women, I think you're supposed to wear a white veil, even though you're a married woman. Um, when you get married, you're supposed to wear a white veil. But uh, the colors don't matter. In fact, my wife has some that are different colors um, that go with different dresses on uh, different styles. I don't know how all that works. I'm a guy, but I know that my wife does that. I also know that just because you're married doesn't mean you can't wear a white veil. Someone out there is probably going to flip and say how wrong I am, but... I've seen women who are married and have 10 kids wear a white veil. And I've seen younger women who are wearing a black dress who aren't married. Maybe they're in college. And they're wearing a black veil because it goes with their black dress. These are things that I don't know or understand. But there's no color coding uh, that goes with what color veil you should wear. Is there any other questions? I think those are the most common ones. All right. Well, hopefully this helps. This is just some information. If you want to look it up and do your own research, you got to write down this. 1 Corinthians 11. Read 1 Corinthians 11. Then you want to write 1917 Code of Canon Law. And you're going to look up the canon. Well, it's on page 427 of the P.O. Benedictine Code, but I don't have the canon there. That's unfortunate. It's in the 1917 Code. I don't have the actual canon. I forgot to write that down. And then you're also going to um, to look at Pope Linus, the second pope. And you're just going to that, weigh that out. All right? Well, good. I'm glad we did this show. And again, I don't want anyone to, to hear me saying um, that from the 1 Corinthians 11, anything I'm not saying, which is like, you know, Submit yourself to drug addicts and abusers and horrible people. Absolutely not. Okay. Well, let's close up with a Hail Mary. Of course, Our Lady wore a veil. We know that. In fact, we even say to Our Lady, you know, put us under your veil, hide us under your veil. So let's turn to her right now and ask for her intercession. We'll pray a Hail Mary in Latin. Nomini Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum. Benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, or prenobis peccatoribus, nunc et et or mortis nostre. Amen. Nomini Patris et Fidi et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. All right. Thanks, everybody, for watching. There's one thing I forgot to mention. Some people probably have left, but one last point before I sign off here. By the way, of course, pray the rosary every day. But is the, I'm just going to say the classiness. There's just something so classy or elegant um, about the chapel veil. I, I don't know how else to say it. It's just kind of classy. There's a certain dignity. It's kind of like when I wear a suit and it's summer and it's really hot and, you know, we're going to a function. I'm like, you know, I don't want to know if I want to wear a tie because it's so hot. You know, I'm going to have all the sweat, you know. But then sometimes you, when you do wear the tie, it's like there's a certain dignity to it. I don't know. 
I'm just saying it. I hope it doesn't offend anybody. All right, remember, our Lord Jesus Christ is the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So go out there and be salty and be classy. God bless.